Well, after 17 games in 34 nights, the Vancouver Canucks bubble burst in Edmonton, eliminated in seven games by the Vegas Golden Knights. It was a fun run, but it is over. Grancer, you've been there every step of the way. We've watched from afar as the Canucks put up a decent fight, although in the end kind of went a little quieter than I imagine their fans would have liked. Still, uh, a lot of fun to have Canuck hockey back for the summer months, but uh, now the offseason officially underway. Is it eulogy time, J. Pat? Now! Now <laughs> it is eulogy time! See, I'm of the opinion that it's always... <laughs> time is a flat circle, and it felt like a flat circle in Game 7. A game with very few Canuck shots, very little energy either way, I thought. Like, I didn't think Vegas played particularly well, right? That's what's so weird about this, is in some ways... Vegas permitted the same script as the year prior to unfold. They took the major penalty. How many penalty minutes did the Canucks have? Nine? Nine or 11? 11. They had had 11 minutes on the power play, yeah. Like, they played undisciplined hockey. Now, they got away with it because the Canucks' power play was brutal all of a sudden. Just completely fell off the map at the worst possible time. Teams, Both teams played gassed hockey. Like, the only guys who really, I thought, Sean were Robin Leonard and Thatcher Demko somehow, right? The I thought, I thought Riley Smith was pretty good for the yeah, Knights last the, night. I thought the Smith Carlson Marcheseau line also, right? Like that yeah. was the key adjustment that the Golden Knights made and that that was the line that got Hughes and Tanev spinning around to the point where Tanev high-sticked Quinn Hughes right before JT Miller right. took the fateful penalty. Um that was that I mean that line that line should have played together all playoffs for the Golden Knights that is clearly their best three-man unit and yeah no so you know I just didn't think it was a very good game it didn't feel like a game seven in the building and maybe that's because I haven't watched a game seven yet J-Pat but neither game felt like a game seven to me yesterday like Colorado Dallas had the offense but it didn't have the intensity like it didn't have that extra you know five percent that you get typically from single-game elimination hockey, and and maybe that's just the absence of fans. Maybe that carries over today, too, to Philadelphia New York, but they they didn't feel the same to me as some of the Game 7s I've seen in the past. And, you know, Canucks, Vegas was particularly flat, and and I do think the back-to-backs did have an impact, although I I wouldn't say they had an impact on the result from Vancouver's perspective so much as from an entertainment value, like as a product. I thought it wasn't as, you know, to have a series that was pretty entertaining and, and pretty fun sort of come to an end, fizzle out, as it were, with that game, just that that's sort of disappointing to me just from a, just from a you know, hockey-watching perspective. Yeah, and I think ultimately the league kind of got what it deserved on that front to jam those guys with five games and seven nights of high-stakes hockey you know, they didn't put the players in a position to succeed. Like, the players are the show. The players are the stars of this thing. And 5-7 and seven is incredibly difficult. I know there was no travel in there. But 3-4 and four to wrap it up. Back-to-back, back, obviously. And, yeah, like I, I get exactly what you're saying. I'm not in the building to feel it. But it certainly looked that way, you know, as a viewer on television. And it, it was... Come on, it was disappointing from a Canucks perspective in as much as 5, 6, and 7 all looked and felt the same, uh, just as one-sided as those games were territorially. 
Like, the Canucks end up getting outshot by 103 in the series. And, you know, I hosted late night radio after the game, and one of the things we got into was those final three games. I asked Canuck fans, like, were they fun or were they frustrating, ultimately? Because the Vegas Golden Knights did skate circles around the Canucks over the final three games of the series. If not for Thatcher Demko, it's over a whole lot sooner. But the Canuck players get the experience of a seventh game, and that'll serve them well down the road. You know, for all these young guys that we've talked about, their first taste of so many things. Well, it was their yeah. first chance to play a seventh game in the National Hockey League, and a seventh game that ultimately was scoreless past the midway mark of the third period uh, against all odds. So, you know, the last three games, a little troubling in the process there, but they were in it, and... If not for Robin Leonard reaching back and robbing Brock Besser, this thing may have had a different outcome ultimately. Even if they didn't deserve to advance, uh, it was there. I mean, there weren't many shots, but there was a grade A for Brock Besser, one of the guys that you would want with the puck on his stick in that situation and give Leonard sort of double credit, A, for the save, and B, because he hadn't had to make many to that point and somehow was able to contort and get his glove on that shot uh, when he absolutely had to. Well, and that's the one thing they say about Robin Leonard, right? Look, Robin Leonard played behind the Islanders, right? So he played last season behind a a really capable defensive team. And then this past season, he played behind the Chicago Blackhawks. And the Chicago Blackhawks are, you know, what we saw from the Canucks this season, but but worse, right? (laughs) And and I mean the Canucks (laughs) in the regular season, you know, where, where really it's just five alarm chances after five alarm chances. So, you know... Robin Leonard is a guy who can do both. And and one thing I think that's going to be interesting to see is what, how the market values Markstrom in the sort of from the perspective of how a defensive team would look at him. We all know he can play behind a high event offensive club. Like We all know he's really good at that. Um, but, you know... How how would it how would he respond playing behind a team like Carolina, right? That doesn't give up nearly as much. That's a real question that I suspect goalie people will have. Um, you know, that said, Markstrom's incredible. So, yeah, no, the goaltending was good, and I agree with you. That Brock Besser chance is ultimately where the game turned. Like the Canucks needed to score first. Obviously, they needed to score at all, but they really needed to score first to have a chance in this game, and. You know, so we enter an offseason, talk about lessons and, you know, the experience. Uh, you know, I, I really struggle to understand, like, what does Elias Pettersson learn from a Game 7 in which his team has 13 shots, right? Like, hockey-wise, I don't know that there's a ton. I think it's more on the motivation side, right? Like, it's more about, wow, that can't happen again, you know? Like, I don't want to live through a Game 7 like that. And... You know, I think that can be applied to the marketplace a little bit too in that one takeaway we've got to have now is, you know, losing in the second round, for me, when I consider this season, I will see that as like losing in seven games to the Golden Knights in the second second round. That is a team colliding with its absolute ceiling, right? Like when Shea Theodore put that goal in on the power play. It didn't feel like a gut punch or a disappointment. It felt like gravity. You know, like it felt inevitable. It felt like the forces of nature actually returning to apply to this game. And so this Canucks team absolutely met its apex, like its pinnacle. They did as well as they possibly could have in this playoffs. 
and the result is you know one series win and a qualification round win. And if the Knights had lost, if the Knights had found a way to fuck it up, which they nearly did, it would have been, you know, an apoplectic screw-up. Like, it would have been a catastrophe for that side. And that's sort of what you want, right? Like, that's where you need to get. You need to get to the point where a second-round win is in a snow day, but instead is something that leaves you wanting an awful lot more. Yeah, I think that absolutely that they got a, a terrific assessment of where those two teams are, and through it all, the Canucks were a shot away from somehow advancing, and the path <laughs> yeah. was there, and all that kind of stuff, but none of that matters now. You know, when you talk about lessons for Elias Pettersson, like, it was crazy and ultimately criminal. Like, in that first period, I bet he had the puck on his stick for 15 seconds of 20 minutes of hockey. Like, it... That first period was inexcusable because we said it in game five. Like, I hope they come out and put up a good fight. And I got game five when they turned to Demko and they were a little cautious and played conservatively in front of the backup who hadn't played in forever. But it just did never change over the course of those final three games. And game six was more of game five. And then game seven ultimately was more of games five and six. And the Canucks had two shots, two shots in the first period. And... I do think that fatigue was an issue, and I know it was the same for both teams, but like it's hard to defend, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it wasn't the same for both teams. One of them played three games with the puck. Yeah, right? like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the schedule, they both had five games and seven <laughs> nights, but within the yeah. context of that, the Canucks were chasing and running around their own zone and could only get to center ice. Like That first period was half-court hockey. Like It really... Really, it really was. was. The, the two yes. Canuck shots. The two Canuck shots were from Edler and Tanev, and Tanev's was from 82 feet, according to NHL.com. Oh so, my god! You know, it just—I don't know. I, I kept thinking at some point there's going to be this pushback because if you look back at games three and four of this series, the first back-to-backs on the weekend after that break, the shots were essentially even. Like Vegas, I think, outshot the Canucks 33-30 and 34-32. And then the Canucks just fell off a cliff over the final three games. And maybe they were trying to protect Demko, but, you know, that's a dangerous strategy ultimately over a three-game stretch. And it did catch up to them. And maybe it was reflected in the power play because, look, you and I have sat there all season. We've watched this power play just crush opponents, right? Like, there were times opponents, like Nashville was just like, mercy, uncle, enough. Like, stop it. (laughs) And the Canucks just kept (laughs) scoring on the Nashville Predators with the power play. And there were other nights, even the St. Louis series, like there were five for the first nine on the power play. Like, they couldn't be stopped. And then we spent so much time early in the series. They spent so much time early in the series talking about Ryan Reeves. Way too much time talking about Ryan Reeves, the network, and everybody. And then it felt like karma. Like, he tries to truly decapitate Tyler Mott. And they get a five-minute major and do nothing with it. They had one shot in five minutes on that power play and two shots on goal in 11 minutes of power play time. Like, that's not the Canucks that you and I sat and watched and covered all season long. No, and you had a sense when the major was assessed that that was the season, right? Like, yeah. Farhan and I yeah. looked at each other and we said, one way or another, this is it, right? One way one way or another, this is the series. And then, of course, the Canucks came out and basically did nothing, right? Like, no, forget not scoring. They did essentially nothing on the power play. And, you know, that felt like it. At that point, I, I was like, okay, I, I think that took too much momentum out of their sails, too much wind out of their sails. I, I don't I don't see them getting back in this. 
um, and or winning. And you know, lo and behold, that was that was the case. And and you feel for JT Miller being the guy who took the penalty because it's not on him, right? Like he was playing twenty minutes a night, defending like crazy. His defenders collide. It's complete scramble mode. There were so many shifts like that. There was a shift in the first where that was the one where Thatcher Demko ended up like lying down. You know what I mean? In the in the crease, just like three guys. That was the six guys in the crease. But it was came off this Edler touch that just did not make sense. And Edler played so well, defended so well. But, you know, mistakes start to happen, right? Guys start to slow when the schedule's that dense and you spend that much time defending. And you just can't win like that. You just can't. And it's actually not even fun to watch. I, I think you're right. Like, I think your point about did you find these fun or stressful, like, you know, for just from an aesthetic perspective, forget stressful. It was it was ugly, right? Like, the Canucks found an ugly way to make this series as close as they could. Ultimately, they didn't have enough left in the tank to really win. And I, for me, I just can't get over J-Pat, how much that underlines their need to improve, right? Like, you cannot have a team that's going to go deeper in the playoffs that doesn't have any offense on the third or fourth line, cannot control play to this extent, has really one high-end puck-moving defender, right? And and two that can do it okay. Like, you need five, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, Vegas has McNabb and I guess Nick Holden, but even Holden's probably faster at this point in his career than Tanev and Edler, right? Like, all of their D can move the puck, basically. You know? Colorado, same way. Dallas, same way. You know, Jamie Alexiak, the exception, right? Um, like, you need a more mobile defense. You need a th- probably, like, you ideally want, like, a third-line center who can score and kill a lot of penalties, <laughs> um, which is not an easy piece to find. Like, the, this team has a long way to go, and I do think that the way that this series ended in the last three games really sort of, I hope anyway, like, double underline in red for Canucks fans and commentators sort of pointing like, oh, 09 Blackhawks, 08 Blackhawks, like, wow, what a team. It's like, I don't know if you watched the 08 Blackhawks lose to the Detroit Red Wings in that Western Conference final, but it didn't look like that. Yeah, and and look, we've sort of made this point throughout. Anybody that's a regular listener, you know, we've said the challenge for Jim Benning is going to be improving this team. That as much fun as it was to see the Canucks play playoff hockey and as much fun as it was to see the Canucks advance past the Minnesota Wild and then dethrone the defending Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues and get it to seven games somehow against the Vegas Golden Knights, you know, you made the point earlier, like, add it up. Okay, the Minnesota series was play-in. This is a year in a bubble. That series doesn't normally happen. It had to happen for the Canucks to qualify for the playoffs. They got seven wins in the playoffs where you need 16 to win the Stanley Cup. And I, I just think that it's important to remember those numbers because yep. while they played 17 or they you know they played 17 games in 34 nights and it was great to have hockey back and it was great to have playoff hockey back for the first time in 5 years they ultimately won 7 games and maybe that was their absolute ceiling for this year but 7 isn't 16 and it's nowhere close to 16 and so you know, for these people that were like, this team, it, like amazing things are ahead. I, I think what we did learn was that this core 
absolutely is the core to build around. Like, yes. Pedersen and Hughes rose up. You know, I was a guy that questioned JT Miller just based on his past playoff performance. I didn't doubt that he could do this, but until you do it, you haven't done it. And three goals in 61 previous playoff games isn't exactly, you know, a number that you would be like fist pumping about. That there had been underwhelming playoff performances from JT Miller, but we said, like, you know, regular season scoring leader, frontline guy, he's going to get this chance to be an absolute stud for the Canucks in the playoffs, and he ends up tying with Pedersen for the team lead and was really good and may have very well been playing through something and still found a way to be productive. So, oh, you know, this things. core. Multiple things. I think he had hand that. and left hip. Yeah, okay. So, again, then, you know, he was there for them every night and ended up being productive uh, Bo Horvat into double digits in playoff goals or postseason goals. Like again, the core is yeah. is the right core to build around. But just coming back with this same team next year and thinking somehow that would be good enough—that is completely the wrong way to look at these Vancouver Canucks. And so uh, I, I think you know, as you said, like it was frustrating. It wasn't a lot of fun to watch the way they went ultimately against Vegas outside of the Thatcher Demko story. But in some ways, it lays it bare there for Jim Benning and John Weisbrod and Stan Smeal and Travis Green and all of the people that are going to make these decisions in this compressed offseason that while it was fun, don't get me wrong, it was. It was fun. It was fun to watch them. It was fun to talk about them. You know, we cranked out a thousand podcasts here during their time in the bubble. Like, it was great, but it wasn't good enough in the end. So it gave everybody a taste but there is still so much work ahead, and that is surrounding this core with the right players. And that's going to be the challenge. Yeah, and, and an extreme challenge because of the cap constraints and the flat cap and the money committed and, you know, how they proceed from there, right? First domino for me is Markstrom. And, you know, I already see, I wrote an article today. It's called, Where Do the Canucks Go From Here?, where do the Canucks go from here after a season of promise and progress? You can check that out at The Athletic. But, you know, I write about how, for me anyway, the franchise, right, the core you're talking about, the reason it's so exciting is that it's built from the net out. Markstrom, Hughes, Pedersen, Horvat, right? And comments already, oh, Demko. Demko. What, what are you talking about? Demko, right? And for me, you know, Demko's excellent performance in these three games is tremendous news but I don't think it changes your big picture plan which is you know Markstrom's one of the team's key leaders and a guy you got to go out and, and resign not not just an off-season priority but a core piece the top goalie on the market and you know I, I do expect that to remain the Canucks's prime off-season priority but considering their cap issues you can understand if they're tempted right to go with Demko, to go with a, a more affordable option. And, and I'm, that makes sense to me, even though it's not how I would approach it and it's not how I think they would approach it. So, you know, but from that domino, you know, you get into Tanev and Toffoli, UFAs. You get into uh, Josh Levo, UFA, guy we haven't heard from in a while. Um, the RFAs, Mott, Vertanen, Vertanen being the big one, probably a three mil-ish arbitration case. You know, Godette. What, how do they approach the Godet contract? I think that's a really that's quietly a really big question because he has no restricted free agent rights. He's a 10.2C. He was on pace for 40 points. He's still a player with no leverage. Like you can maybe get a three-year deal 
at like 3.6 or, or 4 million out of him, right? And that's a deal that can be really, really efficient in the event he adds some heft to his two-way game and becomes a bona fide third-line center as opposed to what he is now, which is, you know, a guy who can produce like a third-line center, but whose impact is more like, a you know, an energy guy on the fourth line in terms of, you know, the overall two-way value. And, and then Troy Stetcher, you know, that's going to be a really tough one too. And, and Stetcher and Tanev are both righties, right? Uh, good, righties who are good at defense, an area that the Canucks struggled at until this playoffs when they seem to do a much better job bending and not breaking. So, you know, you look down that list of players and the Canucks can't keep them all. There will be tough decisions ahead. They also weren't good enough with all of those players, right? So there's further tough decisions and then there's uncertainty with Michael Furland. There's, a, you know, 18.5 million-ish of the cap committed for next season to the following players. Erickson, Sutter, Beagle, Roussel, Sven Berchi. Like 18.5, right? Yeah. Yeah. Other than Sutter, you cannot tell me that any of those players was a major 5-on-5 five -five contributor to the Canucks in the playoffs this year. Right? And that's a quarter of their cap space. So, you know, I don't understand, like, a quarter of your cap space is spent on that. You've got all of the off-season priorities that I said, and there's still people in the market who are like, man, people are making way too much about the cap. It's like, nah, nah, man. This is going to significantly guide what the Canucks are able to do this off-season and the, you know, way that the Canucks can approach that opens up a ton of possibilities and and you know in particular i do think the club will look to find an upgrade for third line center i do think they will look really hard to find a top four righty ideally a mobile guy who can defend provide real defensive value i like i think those are going to be the two areas they really look to upgrade and you know my ultimate takeaway though when i when i sort of look at that is that's great that those are pieces they could use but they need a lot more. Yeah, and, you know, Gaudet to me is a fascinating one because the effort is always there. It was there in the playoffs, and there was no bottom line. And so when you say they're going to look, or you think they're going to look to upgrade their third-line center, I do think they have to figure out kind of what they've got in Adam Gaudet. And, you know, we know the backstory of Hobie Baker and a guy that, you know, earned that third-line center job out of training camp last year and, and had a decent regular season, like 12 goals. And, and you know, there were moments there, but uh, it was a tough go. It was a tough go for him and others in the playoffs, but he ultimately played 10 playoff games and didn't generate a single point. And, you know, is that is that the right guy? Is, is he the right fit for that third-line center position because a lot of it, I think, in the depth is going to build out from that. So, I, you know, maybe that's putting too much of a, a spotlight on him and worrying too much about points. But if you're trying to get this team better, you know, so much of it starts down the middle, as you pointed out. Uh, when you look at the spine of this team, if you will, and the really good teams in this league go three deep. Modern, successful teams have three scoring lines. And you've got to have a guy that can distribute, can make plays, uh, can score goals. And maybe Gaudet is that guy, but that was a tough, tough first go in the playoffs for him. The other thing, too, in all of this, there's two things that I think are really kind of key. One is, you know, all these years of missing the playoffs, the Canucks were done in April. They had all of April, May, June to get ready for July 1st. 
Mm-hmm. Like, this shit's coming fast this year, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. They're good. So decisions are going to be made under a gun of just a, a tight timeline just because of the world we live in. And so that's just going to complicate matters more, trying to get all of this work done uh, so that they've got their house in order. The other one that I didn't think got enough play when you sat down with Jim ahead of the very first game in the bubble and you did your Q&A that was posted was one line sort of buried in the middle was, you know, when all of this is said and done, we have to sit down with ownership and discuss the cap because forever under the Aquilinis and say what you will about the ownership and meddling and everything else, but the you talk to all the Canucks GMs that have worked for the Aquilinis, they've been willing to write the checks, right? Like the cap has always been the cap and they've had a green light to spend to the cap. And Jim's comments there made it sound like in this fucked up world that we're living in with COVID and everything else and no people in the seats and no tickets sold and the Aquilinis can't put concerts at Rogers Arena. Like these are different times financially. I took that to mean that maybe for the first time in a long, long time that just because the ceiling is 81.5, there could be an internal salary cap for the Vancouver Canucks, which, you know, is going to further complicate things. Yeah, it well, it, for sure. Now, the, and, and I wrote this today, the canary in the coal mine for me is going to be the green extension, right? Because of the stellar playoff rookie performances we saw from guys making their playoff debuts among the Canucks uh, group, you know, green's got to be mentioned, right? I, I wonder now, having seen how these last, what, 16, 17 games played out, like, is green a better tournament coach than he is a regular season coach? Like, he might be, right? You know, there some of the things that he's drawn criticism for among Canucks fans, things like being stubborn tactically, right? He wasn't like that in the playoffs. He was extremely proactive. I thought his in-series and in-game adjustments demonstrated the feel of a guy who's going to come out of this playoffs regarded around the industry as one of the best younger coaches in the game. And... He's going in the last year of his deal. He's going to need an extension. It's a no-brainer, right? Like, it's a no-brainer with what has happened under his watch and how Pedersen and Hughes have been brought along, his work with the young players, his dealings with the media, as you know, annoying as they can be in scrums, um, and his success now in the playoffs, right? Like, this is a no-brainer. And it should be a relatively straightforward sort of discussion. For me, that's the canary in the coal mine. Like, in the next two, three weeks... Either Green gets an extension or the cap, internal cap budget story becomes more significant, especially as the Canucks, you know, make deep cuts on the business side. And, you know, the one thing that to, to keep in mind is you can be a cap team while having an internal budget, especially in a world where every player is going to want a backloaded deal. <laughs> like there are ways around it, but... But that's a big story to watch, and for me, the canary in the coal mine example is going to be a possible green extension in the near future. Yeah, and I, I thought his best work was in the St. Louis series, mm-hmm. where, you know, at 2-2, it did feel like things might be getting away from the Canucks, and maybe they were overwhelmed a little bit, and he pushed the right buttons, he made the adjustments, that game five against the Blues when they were down 3-1, to one, and he... Put Vertanen with Miller and Pedersen and his in-game adjustments were were right on. Like he absolutely was spot on in the buttons that he pushed and he got contributions from lower in the lineup and 
you know, goaltending will make coaches look good too. And he had ultimately yep. two no really question. good goaltending. But I, I don't want to take that away. Like, it's all part and no. parcel. No goalies ever looked smart. Or, sorry, no coaches ever looked smart without good goaltending in the NHL. Like, yeah, that's just the truth. What I, I, I thought, you know, again, some of his best work too was when they were, quote-unquote, the road team. Like, their record as the road team was incredible in the bubble. And we make so much about him hunting matchups more than just about any coach in the National Hockey League. And, you know, he had that luxury taken away from him, but was still able to adapt on the fly and, again, made right decisions and and got a lot of the matchups that he was looking for. When you think of uh, trying to get away from Ryan O'Reilly in that St. Louis series, like that was such a cat and mouse game there. And so, yeah, I, I, I no doubt that he is the right coach for this group. And I know that there are detractors out there, but I do think that he probably won some people over. Uh, with his work in the playoffs. And even he, you know, he was asked last night on on his Zoom about, you know, kind of what he has taken from his first look at the Stanley Cup playoffs. And we know that he took Utica to the Calder Cup final. So he's been on a lengthy playoff run as a professional head coach. But this is his first time in the Stanley Cup playoffs behind the bench. Yep. Uh, was there a number of times as a player. And he himself said, like, I'd like to think I'm a better coach now than I was two months ago. And I absolutely would agree with that. So I do think he's the right guy. I think that, you know, you're right. Like for all of the things on Jim Benning's list that get mentioned in the market, (laughs) Travis Green has to be right up at the top, if not at the top, as the first domino to fall to get everything else into place. Because we know the relationship between uh, Travis Green and Jacob Markstrom, and Travis is going to have a huge say in, you know, who he wants to be his goaltender. Like from the outside, you can just scream Demko as loud as you want, but... Travis Green gets a say in this, right? So totally. Uh, so just keep that in mind as they move forward here. And I'm with you. Like, you know, I, I don't imagine there'll be stumbling blocks, but you never know. And and you don't know about the Canucks financials right now or moving forward here. So you know, would that could that be a stumbling block? He's still got one year left on his deal, but we know in pro sports that coaches generally don't coach into the final year of their deals. No, no, and especially this off season, right, where you're going to be uh, in a flat cap environment, you're going to have an opportunity to value hunt on the UFA market. Having a settled environment where you can incorporate a head coach in the pitch, you know, for, for guys who Green has played more, right, than have played elsewhere. And, and I'm thinking guys like Josh Levo, right? Levo sustains that injury spent tons of time in the press box under Babcock, right? Knows that under Green, when he's healthy, if he's playing well, he might even get top six minutes, right? He's definitely going to get top nine minutes, right? That's a big factor in your decision, right? Like, that's potentially something that might shape where you where you sign one year to rebuild your value. Uh, Tyler Mott's another good example, right? Mott knows he's going to see his name on the whiteboard every game if Green's the coach, right? That impacts things. That impacts potential arbitration settlements, et cetera. So, you know, it would behoove the Canucks to get that one out of the way quickly. Um, I think it's a no-brainer. Uh, it is a no-brainer, period. And I think it's the canary in the coal mine. That's the one that I'm going to be watching for in terms of, is this an, a straightforward offseason for the Canucks? Or is there going to be more going on in terms of how they have to manage things in terms of internal budget? And... Uh, you know how that pertains to the hockey side of the equation in particular because we know already that on the business side uh, this is not going to be a team that you know 
spends and employs as many people as it did before the pandemic and and that sucks too right that sucks for a lot of people we care about and work with so it's going to be a very strange off season from that respect it's going to be you're right a truncated off season it's going to occur you know outside the normal calendar there's a lot of work to do and and that's the last thing is this is also going to be the final year of Pedersen and Hughes's ELCs right after this year, they're going to be enormously expensive. And as much as Canucks fans like to point to this run and say, like, well, we're ahead of Toronto, right? It's like, no, Toronto's already signed their players, you know? The, yeah. the, as much as people like to look at those deals for Marner and Matthews and co. and say they're way overpaid, like, man, there are going to be almost no comparables for Hughes and Pedersen. Um <laughs> like they, those guys are going to get paid like a lot of money, a, a, a really large amount. Uh, they're probably going to have cost 10 times as much. Um, so, you know, there's a level to which next season could be the Canucks' first best shot to really ice a, a competitive team. And that sort of enhances the leverage around everything they do. And, you know, at a, at, at a time, too, when the Canucks have now done this, right? And now people are going to be expecting linear improvement, which isn't an easy thing or a straightforward thing in a league this competitive, this difficult, um, you know, with a salary cap where success tends to be cyclical. Like, there is a lot of work to do for the Canucks this summer. This is the most important summer of the Jim Benning era by a lot. This might be considering the quality of their core, the most important summer in Vancouver Canucks history, period. And it's going to take place in this insane environment with all this uncertainty hanging over them. It's going to be absolutely wild to cover. And even without games, even with no real clarity on when we'll have games again, like it's going to be fascinating to observe and, of course, to talk about with you, JPAT. Right. And I've had people say, like, you know, oh, you guys going to slow down? You going to like step back here? I mean, you're staying in the bubble, and really, you know, the, the playoffs are only at the halfway mark, not even through the end of the second round, because there is still a seventh game in the East. So you stay in Edmonton, but as we've shown, we can pound out these podcasts remotely, <laughs> and we will continue. To, I don't know if we'll do it on every other day basis. In fact, I know that we won't do that, but it has been incredible. It's been a ton of fun. Yeah. I mean, the color that you've been able to present with just the things that you've heard in the rink. Uh, you know, that's kind of taken on a life of its own. I know it's not for everybody. Uh, and you know that too, because so you've heard that. But, you know, I mean, for the most part, I think it's been... And, and we thought that that would be the case with no crowd and, and, you know, very little music and those types of things that, you know, we were going to hear the game like never before. And so uh, I would imagine the chirps of the game will continue, even though the Canucks are, are out of the bubble. 100%. And, yeah, I mean... Because <laughs> Vegas, Vegas is still in, so the trips are going to continue, and they're incredible, right? Like they're the Vegas, the Vegas bench and the way they talk is incredible, right? The calling for Tan and Patrick Maroon throughout the game yesterday, you know, and you think Patrick Maroon plays for the Lightning, like this Golden Knights team could yet see this guy in the playoffs, having you know <laughs> dragged his name through the mud. Uh, earlier on in a, in, a, in a series. Like, that's a hilarious storyline. Uh, you can't tell me that that's not a relevant piece of information for fans assessing the stakes of the game, right? Uh, so, no, uh, the chirps will continue. 
Um, they'll continue with the Game of Chirps feature that I do at The Athletic. I, I may I may be a little more careful about what I put on Twitter just based on the reception. Um, <laughs> but we'll see. The, the Chirps will continue. That's going to be, you know... Uh, that's the bread and butter, right? That's the, that's, Hey, look, you've had to, we all have to adjust in this new reality. I can't do the human storytelling. The NHL has not partnered with media to permit that type of storytelling, this playoff run. Um, so we've all adjusted. And one thing I've done is I've transcribed all the swear words and that's what it is. Um, it's all fair game as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I've exercised some discretion when players are injured. Uh, I've exercised some discretion if I don't understand the context of what the player is saying. Um, and I've exercised some discretion in the identification of players. If I'm not absolutely sure it was X player that said X thing, I'm not going to going to identify him. I'm just going to say it came from the Vegas bench or the Canucks bench. And, you know, I think that's all responsible and, and sensible. And you know, shows that I'm still applying basic reporting standards to what I'm passing along, Um, you know, vetting it appropriately. But, you know, I've I've got a lot of people in my mentions calling me a snitch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it goes, you know, that's that is what it is. But look, it's been a lot of fun to to be in the bubble. I'll be here through the Stanley Cup final. I am going to take a weekend after this podcasts recorded my wife and i are going to drive down to banff um, which is only a 20 minute drive according to jason (laughs) kenny and we will uh we'll look at some mountains we'll go for some hikes we'll take some time to be together and and you know maybe maybe get out on a canoe and um and then you know i'll be back for game two of the conference finals basically but i but i do need a little bit of a break here um, you know, this that's also what happens, right? You get a national assignment, you're sent, and it's like, don't just cover the Canucks. You're there to cover the league in the bubble. Like, okay, got it. You know, Canucks go on this crazy run, cover the Canucks. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like, I understand. So, you know, now now I'm going to need a minute. I'm just going to catch my breath. And, and you know, I had um, – I'm just going to take a second and talk about something a, a little bit personal, J-Pat, if that's all right with you. But the Okay, but before you do that, before okay. you uh, drop it down a sec, uh, please tell me that you and your wife will stop somewhere along the way in small-town Alberta at a subway on your way to <laughs> You know what? I haven't eaten I, – I shouldn't – I don't know if I want to say this about a potential future po- a sponsor, but I haven't, um, I haven't hit subway since the pandemic. Well, this is your opportunity because yeah. it would you got to bring it full circle. I mean, I, I feel like Harmon, Patrick, and I should fly in just for the drive <laughs> to Banff with you just to sort of bring this entire season oh, full circle. I'm definitely going to the sign. Like, I'm definitely taking my wife to the sign to get a to get a photo. Um, you know, and, and I'll get Wyatt to Photoshop you guys in just just as he photoshopped <laughs> me in with a sweater vest. Um, Perfect. <laughs> but no, the uh, I'm really excited to get to Banff, and you're right, it will take it full circle, right? Like, the Canucks season began and ended in Edmonton, um, 300 and, or some 320 days apart, basically, uh, which is insane, right? Just insane to think about how this has all played out. But real real quick, I just want to I just want to um, chat about something uh, personal real quick because I had a I had a loss in my family this week. And so, you know, I was always going to grind through this Canucks portion of um, return to play. Like, I I wasn't going to take a day off while the Canucks were playing. And in this COVID world, it's not like you can mourn collectively anyway. Um, But my my grandfather, uh, Dr. Stephen Drance, he was the head of ophthalmology at UBC, 
uh, passed away this week at 95 years old. And he, so he was um, born Jewish uh, 20 miles from Auschwitz, uh, the future site of Auschwitz in, in Poland, and lived to the age of 95, had a, had a wow. great life and a family. And, and, you know, a reminder to us all, too, that, you know, while he had time and while he used that time uh, well to, to be with his family, to work hard, um, to, to make significant scientific innovations within his field and discoveries, uh, that time isn't guaranteed, you know? And I, I know that for some, and myself included, the rhythms of a hockey season or the rhythms of a Canuck season become sort of these, like, benchmarks, these milestones with which you can track the passage of time. And, you know, in this year that's been defined so much by isolation, I think one thing that was nice for people, for, for our listeners, for the VIPs, you know, even for us, is there's a collective sort of edge to Canucks hockey into this playoff run. And, um, you know, I've been thinking about that a bit and just thinking about how much I appreciate being able to chat hockey with you, J-Pat, to be able to share our opinions with our listeners, uh, to be able to use this time to, to connect with everybody and, and chat about these things. And, you know, that's one thing that occurred to me. And, and a hockey story about my grandfather is we were watching, I remember the – um, 96 World Cup of Hockey, and I mentioned that I'd never seen Wayne Gretzky play live, right? Like, I loved hockey. I'd never seen Wayne Gretzky play live. And in the 97-98 season, the fall of 97, my grandpa, my grandpa calls me, and he just says, you know, I remember last summer you said you'd never seen Gretzky live. Well, I bought tickets to see the Rangers play the Canucks, and we're going to go on Thursday. Nice. And And so... It's the, the, it's Messier's first game against the Rangers <laughs> as a Canucks player. <laughs> and so my grandfather takes me. We go in great seats. And it was Gretzky's 50th career hat trick. Uh, the last of his career. I'll never forget it. Finishes the hat trick on a, on a crazy wraparound play. Mike Keane then playing for the Rangers. Like basically takes out two Canucks players. One of whom was Marty Jelena. Truly, truly a heinous interference when I, when I rewatched <laughs> it again this week nostalgically thinking about my grandfather and um you know that's sort of just a moment that i remember not just because it was a big moment for me in my hockey education as it were as in my in my life as a as a fan of the sport but also because it was a moment where my grandfather had listened to me remembered something 14 months later um and you know done something that left a, an impression on me and and sort of supported um, my love for the game and, and, you know, his role in my life. So just wanted to share that with everybody. It's been a, been a heavy week for me as, as you know, I've worked through the balance of this playoff series and um, also just wanted to thank everybody for their support of this podcast, of the Athletic Vancouver. Um, I really enjoyed my first year back covering the team. Well, sorry for your loss. Uh, great tribute to your grandfather. Thanks, and, I mean, I, I, you know, it's it, life is about experiences and memories, and, and certainly it sounds like you've got a bunch. And I, I do love the fact that you know you got into your 30s and still had your grandfather. I know, so around, blessed. which is incredible. Yeah, so, truly is. Take the weekend; you have earned it. You get some new teams coming your way, so you'll have yeah. some new chirpers. You'll Good. have to get the rhythm. You'll have to get the rhythm of the lightning and whoever comes out of that yeah. uh, Islanders Philly. Uh, I, I don't know. There's a small part of me that's pulling for an Alan Vigneault Rick bonus. 
Stanley Cup final to guarantee that one of them ultimately would get their hands on the cup. But uh, we'll see how it all plays out. There's a lot of hockey left to be played. And uh, that Tampa team looks like it's on a mission. And we'll see. I'm really curious to see sort of how Vegas picks up after a series like this one where, you know, is there scar tissue? Is there damage like from the way that they had to grind these last three games? Or will they just be able to hit refresh and facing a Dallas team that didn't give up anything in the regular season, gave up a ton in that series against Colorado. So the Western final is going to be interesting just to sort of see uh, how they get into any sort of rhythm as well. But uh, if anybody's earned a weekend off and a weekend in Banff, it's you. Drancer, it's been a blast (laughs) here all season long. Uh, we should mention Harm and all of his great work, Wyatt with the athletes as well, and I know that there's a support crew behind the scenes too. Uh, thanks to all the VIPs. We're not going anywhere. We won't record no. the rest of this weekend. <laughs> we both are going to step back. But when the Canucks do their year-end Zooms, I'm sure uh, Jim and Travis and select players will meet the media. Uh, you know, they're not done entirely. So we'll find a time, and with social media, we'll let you know our schedule Uh, We'll probably dial it back a little bit here, but uh, certainly want to continue our coverage with you in the bubble in Edmonton. So, great run here. Our thanks to Jeff Demet, our producer. Uh, His amazing work the first year. Can't do it without him and him putting up with our schedules and the flexibility required to pound these things out uh, early mornings, late at night, whatever, short notice. uh, We're the pod squad here. Jeff is the best. Jeff is the best. Yeah, absolutely. The the, the uh, Jeffs. by the way, you guys <laughs> yes. are the easiest group chat for me to find on my phone, right? G-J-E-F-F, and it's like Jeff and Jeff. So, yeah, okay, I can figure that out. <laughs> well, it was a blast to have hockey back to break down in great detail to get into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff and the stories. And, yep. Uh, yeah, I don't know what next season looks like. Nobody does at this point, but uh, can't wait for it to arrive because this team does look like it has the possibility to, to start a run here, and we'll see if the Canucks ultimately can show the finesse they need in the offseason to augment this group because that core is certainly something worth uh, getting behind if you're a Canuck fan and supporting and I can't wait to see all those guys back on the ice but let's call it a day here for uh, this you know day after uh, day after the Canucks were eliminated first day officially of the offseason VanCast again thanks to everybody for grinding through with us just before we run a couple of quick notes Bill Zito hired as the general manager of the Florida Panthers he's going to join Craig Custins uh, coming up uh, sometime this week, uh, the full 60. Okay, you can find that uh, at the Athletic website as well. We always say, and we appreciate all the comments. Uh, there's a comment section for each podcast episode on the Athletic app. So drop us a note. Tell us what you'd like to hear from us here in the offseason. We'll try to get back to a few guests as well. We got away from that, uh, just the two of us, and we had no problem filling our airspace here. But we had some fun with guests during the pandemic as well. So we'll try to find some guests and uh, continue the conversation. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the VanCast on Apple. Click on theathletic.com slash thevancast to get 40% off your subscription. Enjoy your off-season, everybody. We'll be around. Uh, Keep you company as we push on here at the VanCast, the Athletic and theathletic.com. Athletic.com.